Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold wondrous things in thy law. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the, the fun things which I've started doing in the last year and a half with my two-and-a-half-year-old is that on the weekends, I walk about 200 yards to a playground that's near our house. It's really fun. Uh, I love doing it. She loves doing it. Uh, good old Zipporah just loves hanging out with Dad. But sometimes I bring my iPhone, and it's in my pocket. And sometimes people call. So I'll pick it up, and then in the sweetest little broken English, she'll say, Daddy, put your phone down. Daddy, put your phone down. Over the past few weeks, we've been in a series looking at divine connections. Uh, Father Bales, uh, Josh Bales, told us that, that faith is connection to unseen reality. Well, in the psalm that we just read responsively, we're looking at the attribute of God's omnipresence. In fact, if you noticed it, of all the readings that we did uh, in, this, in, in, in this lectionary today, we looked at Jeremiah chapter, uh, we looked at Jeremiah and he talked to us about God's omnipotence, that he can do whatever he wants to all that being within his nature and character of his goodness. He is omnipotent. He's also omnibenevolent. Um, there's certain characteristics God has that he can share with us, goodness, joy, peace, holiness. But then there's certain things which he can't share. They're just what he has, and he can't give them to anyone else. One of those being omnipotence, another one of those being omniscience, and the other one being omnipresence. But if you turn in your books, uh, in, the, in the Bibles, the blue books in your pew, uh, turn to page 448 of the Old Testament, because we're going to be doddering about a little bit in the book of Psalms. What does it look like to unplug or to plug into this unseen reality of who God is? So we're going to be looking at Psalm 139 today. The psalmist tells us three things about God's presence. He tells us that his presence is an inescapable reality, two, that it's an overwhelming reality, and three, that it is a joyful and precious reality. It's an inescapable reality. Now, you, you may hear the word presence and you think to yourself, this is a bit like, you know, gas filling the room. Or maybe it's a bit of incense that's just filling like smoke, the, the nave of this church. Well, the truth of the matter is that God's presence isn't like that. He doesn't just take up molecular space. He, he's, he is everywhere. He is present everywhere because he made everything and he fills everything, and yet the psalmist doesn't flatten creator and creation. But his presence is inescapable, but it's not something impersonal. Whenever you see the word, or often when you see the word presence in the Old Testament, the word that is used there is banim, which means face. There's a personality to his presence. It's inescapable. Where can I go from you? If I, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. And if I make my bed in the, in the depths of Sheol, which is what the ancient Near Eastern people used to call the, the, the place of the dead, the place of the shades. No matter where I go, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn. The second thing is that his existence is inescapable. 
His, in, his existence is inescapable. Now, I'm not sure if any of you tried to watch The Rings of Power. I didn't. Uh, because you see, uh, it's, I, I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, but I always find that, that books are never true to the film. Uh, I see two of y'all got that. Anyway, the point being is that my favorite of all the, the, the Tolkien movies out there is books. Uh, but the point is, is that it, in that, Tolkien tells us in the Lord of the Rings, there's this point where the, where this king is placed on his bier. He, he's, he's dead, and they're having his funeral. And, it, and what they say is that at this one point, the king is placed on, on the bier, and he lies there with all of his youthful freshness, all of his manly vigor, and then all of his stately elderliness. All in one moment, the past, present, and future are met in this one king placed upon that funeral bier. You see, God's existence is inescapable. That's the very way in which God met Moses on the Sinai Peninsula. When Moses says, who shall I tell the people of Israel has sent me? What does God say? God says, I am that I am. Not I was who I was or I will be who I will be, but I am who I am. I am all, I'm not just omnipresent right here, right now. I'm omnipresent even in the past. I'm omnipresent even in the future. There is no way where, nowhere we can go where we can escape from his presence. And the, and the psalmist sees this inescapable uh, existence, but we also see his inescapable power. He's intimately involved in his creation. He doesn't just spin the world together in Genesis 1 and step away. He is intimately involved in everyone's life. Surely, verses 12 through 17 tell us, you knit me together in my mother's womb, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There's this idea that God is, is involved in every level of our existence. And he, his power is inescapable. And the fourth thing that he tells us about is omnipresence. It's not just a, a presence in the physicality of the world, but even in the psychology of our world. What does he say in verses 1 through 4? Before a thought is even on my lips, you already know that. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. He knows everything. It's an overwhelming reality, which brings us to our second point. What does that do for you? Now, I remember I had a professor who actually, believe it or not, was a priest in the Church of England, but he, he was one of those folks that... Uh, had just an interesting take on Scripture. He'd like to take a pair of scissors to certain bits of the Bible and whatnot. And I remember walking into a lecture there at Oxford Uni, and, and he said, I really love the Jesus of Luke's gospel, but I find the Jesus of Matthew's gospel so difficult. He said, I've never read the, mo the most scary verse I've ever read is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. 
And this, this, this professor, this tenured professor at Oxford University used to say, I find that so scary that, that God would always be there looking over my shoulder. It's an overwhelming reality. Well, yes, the English Catholic poet and mystic, uh, Francis Thompson, wrote a poem based off this psalm. It's called The Hound of Heaven. And it's the idea that no matter where you go, God will chase after you. He wrote this poem, and it heavily influenced both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. You hem me in. John Paul Sartre put it this way in his book, Being and Nothingness. He said, the fact that God is omnipresent and omniscient is actually very harrowing, and it's not something that we want. It's something that we want to unplug from. We want to get away from that. And in that, uh, Sartre says, picture yourself, you're in a room, and just outside the room, there's a little keyhole in which someone can see in, but you can't see them. Now picture another room, and there's another keyhole, and that viewer can see the other viewer, but you can't see either of those two. And you keep doing this successfully until you get to one person who has the master keyhole that can see everything, but no one can see him. And this is the unviewed viewer of the God of the Bible. And Jean-Paul Sartre says, this cannot be, because if this were to be the case, we would not be free. Well, maybe that works for us in the Western world where we're very individualistic. But here is the challenge that I think Sartre does get right, but I think he also gets wrong. And maybe that doesn't really, that imagery doesn't work with you, but work with me on this one. Uh, Let's just say that, I'll put it in a way that that Pete, the priest, might put it to you rather than the way that Jean-Paul Sartre would put it to you. Um, Imagine that tomorrow uh, the Lord knows that you are going to drink a a cup of coffee at 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, you don't know that, but the Lord does. So tomorrow at 10 o'clock, what are you going to do? drink a cup of coffee? Or do you think God's going to be like, shucks, Pete, I didn't see that you were going to drink a cup of coffee at 10 a.m. tomorrow. The whole point of it is that God doesn't wake up at any moment of time because all moments of time are for him like the present. I am who I am. He's not surprised by anything. He's not surprised. That is overwhelming. That's why the psalmist who, who is, is meditating on God's omniscience, God's omnipresence says this. He says, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. You hem me in. I feel constrained. I, I don't know what I can do. This is too much for me. And then we, we, we cut out the responsive verses from, from verses 6 through 11. But the whole point is that the psalmist is trying to run to the fur- furthest place he can from God. And he says, no matter where I go, you're there. Not just the wings of the dawn. But what does he say in verses uh, 10 through 11? Even then your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. God's omnipresence can be something harrowing. It may be something that we wish to flee from. 
It can be overwhelming. But the third thing that the psalmist tells us is that it is inescapable. It is overwhelming, but it actually can be joyful and precious. The psalmist says, your thoughts are too wonderful for me. Just this last Friday, I I had the privilege of laying to rest the ashes of our beloved sister, Susan Shannon. We held her funeral here during COVID tide, but we, we laid her ashes to rest. And if you're at all familiar with our prayer service, with that service, we, we use Psalm 23. And there's this moment in which the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, I like that idea of goodness following me, but that's not what the psalmist is saying in the original. Surely goodness and mercy is going to hound me. It's going to chase me like I'm a prey. God is so good that he's going to chase after you. The inescapable reality should lead you to awe, wonder, and worship. The only two options you have when you come face to face with the reality of how big God is, is either despair like Jean-Paul Sartre, or it's going to be wonder, like the sweet singer of the praises of Israel did in Psalm 23. And the more that the psalmist in Psalm 139 meditates on God's presence, his panim, his face, the relationality of that, we see the fact that he's transformed. His, his, his terror, his awe is turned into reverence and joy. Where can I hide from you? Well, the psalmist tells us this. He says, if God knows everything, you can't hide anything from him. But if you must hide yourself from God, hide yourself from God in God. Hide yourself in the cleft of his nail-scarred hands. You see, in crucifixion, you were stripped naked. And your hands were nailed so that you could not even hide yourself. You died in a public spectacle. It's the ultimate keyhole to return to Sartre's image of the unviewed viewer. Jesus Christ is stripped so that you and I can be clothed in God's righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, St. Paul tells us. God does not count our trespasses against us, but he hides us in the cleft of his hand. What comfort. This doctrine of of omniscience. And, And here's the thing. The psalmist in Psalm 1 tells us to meditate upon God's law day and night. And maybe you don't know how to do biblical meditation. Maybe you've tried a little bit of of yoga meditation. But if you're not familiar with how to do biblical meditation, I'm going to give you an easy way in which you can do this. Um, How many of y'all know how to worry? Well, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. You know how to think about something and think about it until it dominates all your thought processes. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a stream planted by living waters, whose fruit yields, whose, who yields its fruit in season, and whose leaves does not wither. Meditate upon God's omnipresence. And that means that no matter what happens to your 401k, no matter what the markets do, no matter how inflation is tearing up your paycheck, no matter who's in power or who's not in power, no matter what war rages on the other side of, the, of this globe, God is ever-present, ever in control, ever comforting us. Let me leave you with this thought of how you can hide yourself in his omnipresence, how you can hide yourself in the cleft of his nail-scarred hands. Augustus Toplady was going for a walk in Somerset, England, back in 1776. He was walking uh, near Burrington Coombe, and uh, uh, one of those summer thunderstorms broke out, similar to what we've been experiencing the last few days here in Florida. So I think we can kind of identify with those uh, thunderstorms and, 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 and just torrential rains that happen. And out as he was walking in Burrington Coombe, he found that he was trapped with this, this lightning falling everywhere, and he found the cleft of a rock. And he went inside that cleft until the rain and the thunder went past. And he wrote these words, which are now actually in our hymnal and so many other hymnals throughout the world. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me. Savior, or I die. 